0: hello everyone and welcome to the pink bike podcast now a couple of weeks ago i managed to record loads of podcasts in msa and this actually a conversation with one of the all-time greats of mountain biking aaron Gwyn. now i was you know i was pretty enthusiastic for this one and um and honestly i just really appreciate how honest and open he was in his answers either way i hope you enjoy this podcast and just want to say thank you to aaron for being so open Aaron Gwynn, thank you very much for coming on the Pink Bike Podcast. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. For one of the most decorated downhill riders of all time, it is strange to be interviewing you in the back of a van (laughs) that I I rented as I'm sat on a camping (laughs) stool. But hey, that's just what we've got. Um, There's so much I want to talk to you about, but before we even get to downhill, I want to talk about something that... It was like an interview that you did a couple of years ago where you talk a lot about tennis
1: Uh, and your love of
0: tennis. (laughs) Yeah, And... Do you still play, t- or maybe not with your arm injury, but <laughs> did, did that, is that something that continued? It's basically, long story short, it sounded like you had a brief period where you got, not just, you didn't just enjoy tennis, you went full like Forrest Gump. Yeah. And were like, we just were, slotted like yeah, right into Uncle
1: Rico, it. we were going pro,
0: for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, um. Is it something you still play? Is it something you're still into? Do you have many sports outside of downhill? (laughs) Um, I haven't played much. Um, Joe and I
1: actually, breeding my teammate, we were really hoping to play here because there's some tennis courts near where we're staying, but my arm's not quite Mm -hmm. ready to whack at a ball yet. Um, But yeah, I haven't played. I might play once or twice every couple of years, but it's something like we've just been moving around so much but when life settles down and you know as i get older i would love to like get back into playing more because i really enjoy playing it it's just been hard to find the time to add another hobby in the last few years
0: (laughs) dude i bet so i mean you're work you know established motocross rider tennis player and obviously downhill rider what was your upbringing like there was a sport kind of a key tenant in your family
1: yeah, kinda. Um, my parents are both musicians. Um no pretty heavy into that. They both worked in the medical field, but my dad played trumpet and he traveled with the band and recorded stuff when he was younger. Um, I think he played like halftime at the Rose Bowl back no in the way. day. Like he so had some cool. bigger stuff, so that was cool. And my mom played piano and uh she recorded some smaller albums and stuff and wrote music and stuff like that and I grew up, like, obviously, you know, in the church quite a bit, and they were, you know, worship leaders at the church when I was a kid, so I was just always around music. Um, My dad really liked riding motorcycles, like street bikes. He always wanted to be, like, a professional road racer, uh, but grew up in a family that, you know, that just wasn't an option for him, and so I grew up, like, as a young kid, like, going to, you know, the babysitters in the morning on the back of my dad's motorcycle and stuff, and... So that's what I always wanted to do is race motocross. Um, but with my parents both being in the medical field, my dad being a physical therapist and it's expensive and dangerous. So the combination of those two <laughs> things, they were yeah. like eh. in the way and on <laughs> the way out. Yeah, so they were like, here's a bicycle. And so I started racing BMX when I was four. Um, and that kind of like I fell into it randomly. I, I had a lot of energy, I guess, as a kid and it was hard for me to sleep at night and uh so I just go to the park and my parents would take me and I just run and run and run. And it was like, I'd finally go to sleep, you know, at yeah, night yeah. if they could wear me out. And so one of the parks had a BMX track right next door. And when I got old enough, I remember, um, you know, or at least what they tell me, I remember the track, but, um, just wanting to go do it. It looked super fun. So they got me a bike. We started going to the BMX track and I loved it. Like I would just do laps from open to close and then I'd sleep good at night cause I'd wear myself out. And so <laughs> my parents were like, okay, perfect. Let's keep yeah. doing this. So. Um, and that's kind of where the love of two wheels and racing and riding happened. And then the story from there through motocross and I played a lot of baseball as a kid oh, and yeah. moto. And then I got into tennis actually later, you know, pretty close to when I stopped riding motocross, had a shoulder surgery, um, on my left arm. And I was out for like four months and a couple months in, I started playing tennis cause I could still swing the racket with my right arm and it was just something to do cause I was yep. driving myself crazy sitting around. It um, really is like the Forrest Gump story, then. Yeah, It's all coming together, man. <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I loved it and uh, really picked it up and, and enjoyed doing it. Never started playing thinking I would ever try to do anything with it. But um, when I stopped racing motocross, it was kind of when I was starting to play tennis more. And, um, you know, I was just trying to figure out how to pay myself through college because we didn't have a ton of money. And I didn't know how I was going to kind of afford that. So I was like, well, I really like tennis. If I can get good enough at this in the next few years, I can start through a, a community college. My dad was buddies with one of the head coaches at a community college in uh, Palm Springs who had like one of the baddest tennis teams on the planet apparently cool. for a community college. So I started going down there and training and uh, I was only really into it for maybe six months or a year, like heavy, like really playing a lot. Um, and I just kind of got to a point where it's was like, man, if you're going to commit like every day of your life to a sport I would rather race something with wheels than play <laughs> tennis so I kind of was like okay let's you know <laughs> hit the brakes on this so
0: yeah um, that was kind of that it feels like sports have always been a central pivot to your life and you just happen to have landed on some riskier sports mountain biking is like we normalize it and we think oh it's just a trail ride I'm just gonna got my enduro bike but if you walk down a high street in a city they like, that's an extreme sport even though we think it's just like playing out, playing outdoors um, are you quite a risk in your... Would you, would you describe yourself as quite risk-averse or very happy to take risks? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I would, I would consider myself to be a pretty calculated person. Like, mm-hmm. I, I grew up racing BMX and all these things and jumping, you know, big dirt jumps in the backyard every day with my friends and just seeing who can, like, kind of one-up another person. But... Mm-hmm. I've never been just like a full sender kind of person.
0: Like you I say that I've seen that yet three minute gaps in that Yeti when Yeah, you jump from one side of the frame to the other. Yeah. That was fucking huge, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So maybe I'm gonna take it with a pinch of salt. Sure. Yeah.
1: So I mean, I I think I've also been riding bikes since I was four. Like I'm as comfortable riding bikes as walking, so to speak. You yeah. know, like I've done it for so long. But I'm somebody that I want to be pretty sure I can do something before I'm going to try. I'm not somebody that just, like, blind hucks into stuff. Like, I, I'm, I'll I'm, i take my time. I might make a lot of run-ups to something, like, even as a kid before I would jump a jump. Like, I want to be... I mean, you can't avoid crashing completely, but I definitely feel like I've always been more on the calculated side. Try to really be ready for what I'm going to do because... I don't like crashing and I want to be pretty confident that I can pull off whatever it is I want to yeah. do. But yeah, I mean, I think I just, I've always gravitated towards, it's hard for me to say because I can't remember a time when I wasn't rotting and racing and doing stuff. So I don't remember like, Oh, there was a time where I just decided I was going to go that direction. That's just always been part of what I've enjoyed. I like going fast, I like jumping big stuff. I like things where there's an element of risk and focus that is involved. Like my wife always laughs because I feel like depending on how life went growing up, you know, if I wasn't into racing, it would always it would probably I just always gravitate towards something more extreme. You know, mm-hmm. if I was gonna go into the military, I'd try to join like special forces yeah. stuff or Navy SEALs. Like I just I like things that are really hard. I like things where there's when there's an element of like chaos going on and you can find a focus and a precision in those moments, like that's where I feel like I can I'm kinda of my best. So um and I like those really high-end sort of challenges. So I don't know. You know, that's just kind of always how I've, I've been.
0: <laughs> well, I think in some ways, I think for people that they're doing, they're happy to take risks, but they calculated risks and people that like executing things, I think that in some ways downhill is kind of like the perfect sport, maybe more than so than other avenues of mountain biking. You can see the track, you can work it out, you can piece it together, and you can focus on your process and just get it dialed theoretically. Yeah, totally. Um, going back through the years, you've had some like quite amazing runs that really stand out. i mean that Val Sol in 2011. There's been some great stuff at Wyndham um, here in 2017 in the wet, which was just fantastic. And of course, m- numerous exploits at Leergang. For you, do you, ha- do you have like a, that day was my best ever race win, or maybe it wasn't even a win. Maybe it's actually, you just made something work that perhaps shouldn't.
1: Yeah, that was a kind of a crazy day here.
0: Um, I remember watching that. It was so cool.
1: Yeah, I... I guess, like, I I didn't think a lot about it. You know, you just kind of react with whatever situation sort of thrown at you. It's kind of usually my mindset. I don't stress too much about stuff. It's like, okay, it's raining now. Let's focus on how do we do the best we can in the rain. Um, You know, I remember being kind of like, I don't know, kind of chill that day. Like, not a lot of pressure. I felt like, for me, it was actually a good thing because... I had just flatted and pretty much thrown away a win at Switzerland. I think I was up on the it was on the, the top the time. It was
0: I think. Yeah, Greg yeah. and
1: I were kind of locked into a championship battle, and I was I was up on the time coming into the bottom split at Switzerland to win that race, and I got a flat at the bottom of the track, and I kind of just gave away like an entire race worth of points there to Greg. So Greg, I think, was almost a full race up on me when we came here, and so I was in a position where I had two races left and I needed to make up. Basically, like, I needed to win and he needed to get zero points was kind of what needed to happen for me to get back into the championship fight. So... I'm not somebody that like loves rain and riding in the rain, but I remember like when it started raining, I, I needed Greg to have a bad day, basically. And I remember when it started raining, I felt like, to me, that increased the odds of that happening. Yes. It also increased the odds of me having a bad day. But, but you had a bad day anyway, <laughs>
0: essentially, in, in the overall standing yeah, as it was.
1: exactly. Yeah. So I knew with the rain, that was going to kind of throw the results potentially more upside down because Greg's just such a consistent, solid rider to get him to really have a mistake if the conditions are good, you know, it's, it's hard. I knew it would be hard in the wet, but I felt like to me, it was like, well, you know, for the championship, this might be okay. You know, if I can survive it better than he can, there's definitely a potential for a shakeup in the results. Cause if Greg has his best run and it's dry, like he's going to be right there in the top few guys, no matter what. So um, I kind of saw it more of as an, as an opportunity and I tried not to stress about it. We, we, John and I always laugh cause we were, rolling into the start gate for the race run and it was literally a waterfall coming off the roof of the start house and uh, it was like pedaling out into a sheet of water and i rolled up to the gate and all the officials are standing around the timing people all looking at me and I'm looking out of the tunnel and it just was like one of the heaviest, craziest rains I've ever seen. And everybody was kind of looking at me, like almost feeling bad for me that I was going to have to go race down that. Then I kind of took a glance out and I was like, well, like that looks like fun. And it was like, you know, a minute to go before my run and they all kind of had a laugh. And I was just, I kind of was just trying to keep it light. It was like, what can you do when the conditions are like that? It's like, we're just going to go out and just focus on hundred percent effort, no matter what happens. Like you're usually always going to have some sort of drama happening in runs like that in those conditions. So you know, like, you just got to be in for the fight to deal with whatever's going to get thrown at you. So that was kind of my mindset, and that's kind of how the rain, or how the run went. It was just kind of a a fight from start to finish.
0: (laughs) And without getting too granular, maybe people that aren't that familiar with the run or or the win, getting to the bottom, it's got some kind of famous big turns here at the bottom. And speaking of getting these points on Greg in the overall, and you still went for this really tight inside line, did, did you know you were having a good run at that point and was it is is that just what you've been doing all weekend or was it like i mean you could have potentially thrown it away
1: yeah i didn't think about it i felt pretty confident with those lines um how much i could push it where it was um i'd been doing those r- lines all weekend and so i was like oh, i'm not going to change it now yeah. i felt like i could still hit it um also it was raining so hard during the run That the dirt here in St. Anne is one of the best tracks if it's going to rain. Like the dirt here is different. People are always like, oh, you know, like Lords, for example. We had a, (laughs) a run, I think, the next year where it rained, and I was one of the last guys to go down after the fast guys went in the dry, and they're like, Maybe he'll do it again. I was like, no, no, this is not that kind of track. We're going to pull that one off. <laughs> but St. Ann, the dirt here is is pretty good when it's wet, especially if it's really raining. It's got more sand in the dirt. And so it's more when it starts to dry out and it kind of thickens up. That's where things get sketchy here. But if it's really raining, this track will actually roll pretty fast. It's definitely slippery, and it's really hard to see. Um, but it's not that bad on traction. So I ended up running dry tires in that mm. run and I was, I was still holding my insides and stuff. So if it would have stopped raining for 20 minutes or so and then I would have tried some of those lines, it might have been a little squirrely, yeah. but because it was downpouring, like the traction was actually decent.
0: Now, through your career, you know, starting, I guess, it was Yeti, Trek, Specialized, YT, and now on Intense. It feels like maybe especially when you're kind of going to specialised. There's sort of this rhythm of like coming on the first year, maybe the, taking a year to get bedded in before then really announcing yourself in the second year. Um, and I think we've seen that both at specialised and, and YT. What, what do you think is it, do you think that you are, you maybe have a higher speed but a narrower window or do you think that you're better at develop or you're just basically strong at developing a bike? Or, or what, how do you explain? So it's kind of like a phenomenon like, right? and now it seemed to be sim- similar with Intense, like got on, the, got on the team and, you know, previously that, you know, Charlie Harris and Dean Lucas team were getting good results. I mean, I'm not saying it was, I've never ridden the bike, so I can't comment on whether it was fast or not, but it felt like a year of understanding. And then it's like, and kind of torn at the rule book, roll book, and now you see Dak absolutely flying on that thing. What's your approach with that? And how do, you, how do you feel about it in hindsight?
1: Yeah, I think um I don't know. I like I'm not somebody that just wants to switch teams to switch teams. I mean, ideally I would have a brand that just feel like you jail and you sign a contract with and you race your whole career and you retire and you ride them forever. Like I mean, that would be epic if that was reality. That'd <laughs> yeah, totally be great. Yeah. But that's just kinda not our industry. There's so many things moving and contracts and money. And, you know, it depends on who the sports marketing guys at the company each year, if they care about downhill or they don't like, there's so many moving pieces. So every time you go to renegotiate a deal, there's so many factors involved. And it's to me, you know, I, I like working with brands that want to push forward on the product, you know, want to kind of get things somewhere. And I'm willing to jump onto product that maybe isn't perfect straight away. If I feel like the people are committed to making it good because I know that you know between my mechanic John and I we can give them the feedback that we need to make pretty much any product whether it's tires or brakes or derailleurs or bikes or whatever like we've kind of had experience with everything so I'm pretty confident as long as you have the right team of people and then with our feedback we can we can make products awesome and so I'm willing to take a little risk sometimes to maybe jump on a bike or a product like TRP or some of these brands that were kind of no-name companies like V tires now like Brands people would maybe know, but just haven't proven themselves at the highest level. If I feel confident that their team and their company is focused on trying to make the best products, Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, if you guys have the abilities on your side, we can give you the feedback that you need to, to make the best stuff, then we can get there. And if that takes a year or whatever, like depending on all the factors, sometimes that's worth it. Sometimes it's not. So, um, and it's fun. I, I really like working with companies closely on developing product and feeling like you're a you're a part of something, you know, a part of the growth. And when you can take a brand like say YT or TRP or a lot of these brands that didn't have success at a world cup level, and then we can come in and start winning races with them for the first time. Like that's just a really cool experience and a cool thing. So, um, there's a bit more risk involved, you know, for sure. But it, it just depends on the year and the contracts and how things are lining up.
0: And sometimes I think it's maybe better to, I don't know, maybe have your destiny in your own hands a bit know what you're getting in for rather than maybe they bring a new frame out that doesn't work for you maybe you kind of your contract just doesn't align with the right cycle of whatever yeah and at least then you kind of you feel like you're in on in on the first day and you can totally
1: yeah and i mean ideally it would be you know there's a lot of these brands that are these big brands that everybody would think of the household names whether it's components or tires or frames or whatever and they've just sort of been the standard for so long And I've ridden all those products enough to know like, yeah, these are all really good products, but I think we could make them a little bit better. And a lot of times those brands are kind of so huge. They're not as focused a lot of times on R&D and moving things forward. Like they kind of have longer product cycles with certain lines and certain things. So if you got this kind of, let's just call it like a young, hungry brand that's like, hey, yeah, we're willing to make it better than what those guys are doing. And we're going to give you all the resources to do it now. And we're not worried about marketing or any of this other stuff. We just want to fully focus on making the best product. Um, to me, that's, that's exciting. Cause yeah. I'm like, okay, you know, I love this tire from X brand that it's always been sort of the stable, but I know it can be a little bit better. And if they're not willing to do it, if we can do it with another company, then I could potentially have an advantage now. So for me, like I, you know, I enjoy doing that. I like working with brands that want to push things forward want to work really close to close or, you know, one-on-one kind of in a close fashion. Um, and it's hard to do that with some of the big brands. You know, there's a lot of departments, a lot of things, a lot of people involved. You know, it's they're selling so much OE product and they have so many other things going on that for them, you know, their interests at times are divided just, you know, by default kind of. So um, sometimes these more startup companies, we'll call, we'll call it, are a little more motivated. Yeah, a bit
0: more agile as well. Yeah, yeah. And they're evident.
1: smaller. They can move around. They can make changes quicker.
0: Yeah. Um, and looking looking back to the teams, I mean, I think that there have been some... The, the move that sticks out to me is like the most sort of as maybe the most infamous one was the move from Trek to Specialized and that letter of intent or whatever <laughs> um did you ever feel like you were definitely going to stay with Trek and it changed I mean so if you, I don't know how much you can how much you're willing to speak about it but yeah well, what was the breakdown with that um and do you think now as a team manager you look at it slightly different if someone waved a letter of intent in your face and you were like but dude you know kind of um I've always wanted
1: to tell the stories of my sponsor changes. Someday, <laughs> I might need to read through my contract about yeah, what I can and can't say legally, because um, there's a lot more to it than what was in the public, for sure. And um, that was a tough time for me. I felt like I was getting slammed <laughs> by mm-hmm. everybody, and I knew I was in the right, but I was. And everyone's a, got an opinion, right? Yeah, I was a young kid at the time, and I I hate drama. I always have. I just completely like if somebody's gonna be nuts about something it's like whatever I just kind of go the other way and I'm like I'm just gonna focus on racing my bike and I'll go try to smoke everybody next year and just let that be that like that was kind of my mindset but yeah that deal with track um, so basically yeah we did have a letter of intent it was a base term agreement on base salaries I think bonuses and stuff but we had basically had a, a handshake agreement on other aspects of what that agreement was supposed to involve and I got the okay like hey you can run your own gear you can do this and this and this so there was all these other areas of freedom that I was supposed to be allowed so and those are all areas where I was gonna make you know hundred hundred and fifty grand you know in sponsorship sure. yeah, money so not, not, to not be able change. to have these freedoms um, and I was told I was gonna be able to do that the LOI was just a very basic term of base salary and then it was kind of told to me like hey yes you can have the rest of this we'll put it all in the contract here's just a basic LOI and I was like okay good well, then when the contract came, it didn't have any of that stuff in it. And I was like, hey, we, you guys said that <laughs> I could yeah. have a gear deal and I could have these other things. And the response was basically like, no, sorry, it's not happening now. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, why wouldn't have agreed to these terms if yeah, I would, would have, have known that? Because that changes my salary that. by yeah. a lot and the freedom to run my own gear and kind of look how I want to look and all that. And so that was kind of for me where, what started it, it was like, okay, like I didn't like that. I felt like, you know, it was very clear to me I was going to have these opportunities. So that's one of those things I think as a kid, you know, now I never handshake agreement on anything. It's like, okay, everything's got to be in writing. It's all got to be in the contract. Like we have to have a very clear understanding Mm -hmm. of what we're getting into and then everything runs really smooth. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Sometimes that sort of bound maybe not boundary setting but whatever you want to call it that initial clarification can be like short-term discomfort for a long-term gain yeah just like one local conversation maybe just so you know that this is how i work this, yeah we get signed and then and now it runs smooth i mean i i'm i've negotiated basically all
1: of my deals um for all the you know i don't know the last eight or nine years or whatever now it's it runs really smooth because you just have those conversations up front it's like hey this is what i want this, how it's looking, where are you guys at? You know, you have your negotiating process and it's like, okay, perfect. We're going to put all this in the contract. We understand kind of where everything begins and ends. And it, there's just no gray area. It's, it's very easy to function when you know exactly where things are going to be. It's, I know my job responsibilities, they know theirs, like everything runs good. So mm-hmm. that was kind of that. And I think, you know, and I don't want to assume, but I think with the Trek deal too, like specialized did come in really late that year. Um, and they came in with a lot more money, a lot more freedom, a lot more everything, and I don't know that Trek knew that I had another option on the table, you mm. know, or I don't think they thought anybody was going to step up to try to beat that offer, so I think they were kind of in a position where it was like, now we got you locked down, and we're just you know, like where are you going to go type yeah. of thing, and and it's business it's yeah exactly to their and that's the thing like I never really had. I wasn't happy about some of the interviews that came out after that and some of the stuff that was said by, you know, that team in Trek. That I they weren't honest in a lot of that and that was frustrating to me. But, um, and I probably would have responded different now with the wisdom I have now and kind of my maturity. You, know, up, I, I like think you said I, you were quite
0: young. Yeah. And also I think that you were such a disruptive force within racing. I think it meant that, not even the establishment, but maybe the, the establishment of fans. I think in a way there was like sort of this sort of like start like you know turn up to world cups and doing this that and the other and then maybe once you have that much success that like quickly maybe that's the element you know people want to see you fall on your face a bit
1: yeah maybe and i think you know when you're a young kid and you got these brands like doing interviews like oh aaron kind of like screwed us over and he said he was going to do this and then didn't do it when in reality it was kind of the opposite you know where i was like no you guys said you would do this and now you're not doing it and now you're trying to force me into something that w- kind of wasn't the overall agreement so you know but it it is like you said it's business i don't really I've had a couple of those moments with contract changes and stuff that, you know, I think some people might get hurt by or offended or whatever. But to me, I'm like, at the end of the day, these guys are, they're trying to run a business. They're trying to make the decisions that are best for them as well. Um, A lot of times you're dealing with sports marketing guys or whatever, and they've been given a budget they need to stick within. They're basically like, go get this guy, spend as little money as you can. I'm sure like the better you can do on the budget, the more you can spread the money out. Like those are all positives when you're running a business. So I don't, you know, nowadays, like negotiating now for a a lot of years is very, uh, emotionless to me, you know, Mm -hmm. it's very straight up. I think a lot of people want to get like intense and emo and like debates and salary negotiations and stuff. And for me, it's just kind of black and white. It's like, no, I believe the values here and here's why, here's what I can provide. Like either that makes sense to you guys or it doesn't. And if it doesn't like is there a compromise that makes sense for both of us or is the, if there isn't, then there isn't. And yeah. it's like, it's all good. It's cool. Like, I'm I'm cool with everybody that we've ever had contracts, even with the Trek thing and stuff now. It's like, I enjoy seeing all those guys. Yeah, um, A lot of people over there I really love. Like, it was just, you know, I mean, it was a bummer the way things went down, but it ended up good for us and they're still doing great as a company yeah, as well. Totally. So it's like, whatever.
0: And with the changes that we're seeing, you know, after this first season under Discovery, um, do you think... A downhill team is a good proposition because there, lot, lot, lots of them are pulling out of the enduro side of things i mean even this weekend on the rumor mill i'm hearing quite stern things in that regard yeah do you think a downhill is a good proposition for brand for marketing
1: i think it is yeah and i've always thought that way um and that is sometimes the tricky thing with brands like if you get a brand like say intense or some of these brands like gravity racing is sort of their focus you know yeti yeah. some of these these brands Whereas brands like say specialize in Trek, they're a lot bigger brands, but they're also like their interests are kind of more divided. Um, you know, they do road racing, they do XC racing, they do, you know, all kinds of stuff. So things are sort of spread out a lot more, but that being said, all those brands through the years, I mean, they all have like the absolute top notch programs now. Like I think all of their programs, like with somebody like specialized or Trek, are world-class now, like they, they all, they're not they skipping any yet. steps. Like they're really good. Um, but yeah, I think to go back to the, the question of downhill, I've always believed downhill has a, a lot of value because it's, people call it the F1 of the sport or whatever, but it is kind of like what a lot of the average riders that ride mountain bikes, you know, or enduro, it's what they watch. It's what they kind of looked up to. It's kind of the, the highest end of that. And to me, the marketing you get out of that, um, there, I'll just say it this way. There's a top brand, one of the, the main guys I was talking to here a couple of months ago, and they've done a really big study industry-wide on, you know, downhill versus Enduro versus cross country versus whatever. And they ba- basically found that the average downhill rider owns, I think it was like three and a half bikes or something like that at a time. And the average cross country road rider owns like 1.2 bikes on average. Mm. And if you think about that, that totally makes sense cuz what downhill rider do you know that only has a downhill bike so it's like sure maybe downhill bikes aren't the highest selling bikes in your range but n- almost nobody that rides downhill only has a downhill bike yeah, they right. all yeah. have a trail bike potentially an e-bike now that probably jump, a dirt uh, jump bike yeah. maybe a cross country bike or a road bike like usually you know all my friends that ride downhill they all own three or four bikes and the people that i know that are like hardcore cross country or roadies like they'll have really most of the time one really nice bike and they switch it out every, you know, three to five years or something like that. So, you know, when you look at what does downhill bring marketing wise, or let's just say the gravity racing in general, that crowd consumes, I believe, you know, more products, more bikes, more things. So if you have a heavy presence and let's just call it gravity racing, I think there's a huge benefit to brands doing that. And I, I can tell you for sure. One big brand is is investing heavily there because of what they found in those sort of statistics.
0: And as a team owner, someone that's well, because I know Todd kind of does the the road managing, and then you are you the team owner. Is that how you describe it?
1: Yeah, basically. Like I I own the program, um, and kind of I know, negotiate all the contracts, all okay. the deals, all that kind of stuff. But Todd and Kathy are. Lit, the logistics managers, yeah. we'll call it. So they, cool. they really make life easy on me. Yeah, they, they do an do incredible job. That, I was yeah. in pits early on today, and,
0: <laughs> and Todd's absolutely... But even he gave me the full VIP treatment, took me for a ride on the trails yeah, and yeah. stuff. It was pretty cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, and John, my mechanic, uh, stout man, all the mechanics, They they do a really good job making sure the parts are where they need yeah. to be and we have everything we need. So without those guys... Being a team owner would be really hard but for me i, I kind of negotiate all the deals put the people together that's my part i want to build a really good team of guys and so that functions well and they're all so good at what they do they yeah. they do the rest
0: i'm so happy so i used to work with john stout yeah he's joe breeders mechanic <laughs> and from the outside obviously you, you don't know but xyz but the setup you've got just seems to, john is is the best mechanic I've worked with. I've always, thought, if I was a World Cup racer, which I understand, no one's picked me up. <laughs> I'm, I'm a free agent. Um, he'd he'd be the person I yeah. corner. I just think he's a great mechanic, and I'm so happy he's found someone that lets him have his attention to detail and just lets him do what he's really passionate about. Totally, which is um, just the best. But yeah, All I was going to ask is, with all the chains up, change up of the downhill this year, how, how have, have you ever got a bit nervous as a team owner? Like, Oh man, this could go either way. Or do you have faith in this kind of project that Discovery's bringing?
1: Um, I. I don't think I've ever felt nervous about it. I I try to give people the benefit of the doubt up front. You know, it's like, this isn't really my area of expertise, even though I've raced for a long time running a broadcast show and TV numbers and how all that works. Like, I don't know all the ins and outs of that. So I, you know, I try to give them a, you know, a bit of grace up front or whatever you want to call it. Like, all right, hey, if you guys think you can come in and do this, like, you know, mountain bikers notoriously don't like change whether it's wheel <laughs> no. size or e-bikes or whatever it is. So, you know, and I think there's always going to be growing pains along the way. So, I just try to kind of like let's give it a couple of years and see what they can do. I wouldn't say that all the right moves have been made, you know, but that's that's my opinion, you know. There's a lot of things that I thought would be a little better that aren't. There's also some things that I didn't think would be great but are pretty good. So, Uh, For me, it's like they got to get in. They've never done this either, you know what I mean, at this level. They've got to get in and learn. They've got to go through some seasons. They're going to learn a lot. They said that up front. So for me, I try to be more supportive of them and like, hey, how can I give you guys some feedback that can help? Can Mm -hmm. I fill gaps? Can I give you guys information? Can I kind of be the mediator between the riders and them, which I kind of have been? Um, How do I just help you guys do it better? I think it's better than just criticizing all the time, even if you are frustrated at certain things that are happening, I just try to be more proactive, I guess.
0: And as someone that has spent so much of their career at the very sharp end, also with periods of injury or you know, you only had an issue with your thumb, thumb which was lingering yeah. for quite a while. How do you reconcile your desires, or what what you think the sport should be in terms of field size or in terms of qualifying, with the fact that you've had it both ways? Because imagine when you were top five every week you're like actually you know what this could be 10 riders and we could get it done within <laughs> half an hour and it'd be fucking great we'd be home for lunch <laughs> yeah. and then other times it'd be like well i'm kind of on the bubble here yeah there's nothing i can do i just need to maintain points and maintain momentum and i need to know that there's a space for me when i'm fixed in two months time mm-hmm. what what do you think the answer is it's such a complicated question <laughs> it is we need complicated. A national series it's better right
1: yeah it's really hard um and it's really difficult i think because everybody tries to compare us to other sports and there just really isn't I don't think a fair comparison with almost any other sport. We're just, we're very different. So I, um, if it's true that, you know, for a TV slot, say it's two hours or whatever it is, I don't remember what it was, but something like that, if they can only fit 30 riders plus, I think it's 10 women. Um, if you can, if that's as many riders as you can fit into that slot while showing as much of each run as possible with the goal being full runs, which they're pretty close to showing full runs at some tracks now um then you know that parameter is is pretty set yeah you know what i mean so you got a decision to make like okay we we have more people we show less of the runs you know we kind of sacrifice quality there potentially we move things along faster we don't have a maybe a pre-show or a post-show or whatever like you could make some moves there um but it is tough and i i don't like the semi format i i kind of understand what it what it's accomplishing and I don't know that I necessarily have a better idea, but I would say to me, I as a racer, I didn't really race it, but I know for a lot of the racers, I think, they don't really like it. It's just mm-hmm. more racing. As a fan this year, not racing, it's a bit weird because I feel like I'm watching a race just it, to watch
0: another it's, race. It is so, like, I love downhill, but the time commitment to watch a weekend's coverage, yeah. I, it's literally like your whole weekend's yeah. gone. And I was speaking to Brooke McDonald about it, and he was saying that over that three-week back-to-back, you basically had nine race runs in three weeks, which yeah. is a lot of risk. It's a lot of intensity. And I just think, you know, when I get stressed out with, if I've got to meet unread emails, I can only imagine <laughs> the, the psychological load on your nervous system. Yeah. To get fired up that often. Yeah. So I think it's quite. It's tricky for,
1: for sure. Tricky. And I think, um yeah, I mean, when I watch the races, I don't watch semis. Like I just tune in and watch the the finals yeah now now it's hard because i'm commentating both Dude. and it's really hard to commentate everything twice you know you're it kind must of, be
0: exhausting as well
1: yeah it's hard to make it entertaining like it's a tough one i think to me what i thought i think what we did last year with red bull was the best i think to me and i'm sure there's complications here and there might be some issues where this is impossible but i thought that format of like let's say you have the women's finals And to me, it would make sense to, let's say, maybe delay the live coverage of the women's finals 30 minutes or whatever it's got to be. And so you run the women's finals, you film that, full runs, the whole deal, and then you start top 60 men, just like last year. So 60 guys qualify for finals. You film partial runs for those 30, but they're not shown on TV. But you just film them so you have the footage. So whoever the fastest guy was out of those 30, when you start the final 30 men, You say here's the fastest guy so far here's his run and so when you delay the start of the women's race so the women wouldn't be shown live live which would be a bummer you know you could actually probably find those results before you could see it say 30 minutes or an hour later but in my mind you could start the show basically when the 60th men starts with the women yeah and then roll that straight into the top 30 men so you could fit the TV schedule you could still get 60 men and potentially more women you could do the same thing in women too you could qualify 15 and just show 10 or whatever mm-hmm. um, so you would still get everybody kind of into finals that you would want it would fit the TV slot You know, I think the concern was for Discovery was like, well, what if somebody outside the top 30 wins? And I'm like, well, that is a risk, you know, in rain races and stuff. But that's only happened like once or twice, I think, my whole career. So I'm like, do you make the whole sport complicated, hard to follow and weird every weekend for something that's going to happen once every five to ten years? Like, I don't know.
0: It's hard. I mean, I think downhill, you only really understand the complexity of what downhill is when you watch it with someone that's never seen downhill before. And they're like, oh, so who's fast? It's like, oh, it's this person that rode like an hour ago. Yeah. And we haven't really seen their run, but we can just assume it was really quick. <laughs> and then they keep coming down. And then there's sort of, because it's not like Formula One where we have these, we know what setup they're going to have. And they have these red ties that denote this thing or whatever. And so the commentators are trying to understand almost as it goes. And they've got little tidbits to add, but they're also like, oh, but I think he's on MUDs. No, he's not on MUDs. Yes, he is on MUDs. Oh, and then sometimes people <laughs> look faster when they're going slow and slow. And they, I mean, it's just yeah so hard to cover it's and then that's we're touching on like enduro and edr and the absolute shitstorm that must be to cover mm. because you can't even get cameras out there it's yeah. just such a huge undertaking
1: yeah it's tough for sure and it's it's confusing to me because you got protected riders and you got this qualifying and yesterday's qualifying and points and overall standings and all this stuff and it's you know to me i was curious to see you know i was of the mindset of Ideally you want all of the fast guys in the finals every weekend with a chance to go after a win to yeah. me That's good racing. I don't yeah. like seeing one of the top guys go out and qualifying, you know And I think ESO was like well Maybe it does adds a bit of drama and the results are kind of be all over the place and I was like, okay f- fair enough as a racer I don't like that extra risk, but I'm like maybe as a, a general fan That's more exciting, but I think after watching the year play out like for example I don't think Dakota made a, a finals or two because he had a crash and wasn't protected couldn't make the top 60, that cut is so hard to get into now. Or if you have a flat tire and as soon as you miss one finals, you go so far back in points that now like you're really not protected. Yeah. And now it's like things oh, sure, can steamroll yeah. in the wrong direction really quick. And it's like, dude, like it's just, you know, your whole season's kind of wrecked before you know it. And that's happened a few times this year where there's like top guys. And I'm like, ah, oh. like Dakota could have legitimately battled for a win at Val soul. And he wasn't in the finals because of the new format. And that's happened to multiple riders this year. So to me, not just because he's my teammate, but I'm like, I would really like to see the fastest guys at the least have a shot on a race run. And yeah. so when that doesn't happen to me as a fan, that's a that's a bummer. So, um, And I love the buildup. I mean, downhill is a one run for everything on the Saturday or the Sunday. You know, you have the qualifier the day before, you get a little taste of where everybody's at, and then there's this big buildup, and it's like one run. That's how downhill's always been. That's what I think makes it special. So semis to me kind of waters that down. It's like you do the big run and then you're like, okay, now you got to go do it again. And then it's just, I don't know. Like, I don't think it's horrible, but I definitely prefer (laughs) the other format. And I think there's probably a better solution than what, what they did this year. And so we'll just see, you know, if they're able to tweak it or whatever. But that being said, we've never had a season, seven races, seven different winners plus world (laughs) champs. I mean, it really throws the results all over the place. And so I, you know So I don't know.
0: <laughs> well, as, as we kind of begin to close this off, I've got two questions. One's an, an easy one. One's a hard one. Which, which one do you like first? <laughs> Give
1: me the hard one. Give me the hard So
0: <laughs> five overall titles. Is it five or is it six? Uh, five, yeah. Five, five overall titles. Which one was... Which Do you have one that, that holds closest to your heart? And, you know, which, which one was your, your best riding, do you think?
1: Um... It's hard to say. Um, I I remember the last one the best, you know, the one where I won here in the mud because it just seemed the most unlikely. Um, I feel like I had everything I needed to win, but we had just weird races that year with the, you know, I think we got rained out the first race or something. And then when I had the flat in Switzerland, like that was a big comeback, you know, all the way down to the end and winning here in the rain and then Val de Sol to like you know, take over the championship right at the last minute. So to me, that was a really hard fought one. Some of the other ones I wrapped up a race early, so they were a little less uh, dramatic. Um, the 2011 one, the first one I won, I don't know that it was my best riding. I would just say I was winning the easiest that year. Yeah. And I really believe I should have won every World Cup that year. Um, and I think I lost two that yeah. year. Fort William was one. I think I was Five seconds up coming into the bottom split, and I crashed in like literally the last little stupid flat turn on the track, and gave that one away, and then I got third at LaBresse for the finals because all I needed to do was get seventh to ramp up the wrap mm-hmm. up the championship, and I just rode so nervous and tight I got third, but it was wow. horrible riding like i had I definitely had the speed to win that day um so to me that that was the season where the wins were kind of coming, I would say the the easiest and I felt like I had a little bit of a step up on everybody if I had my best runs like there's no way anybody was gonna beat me
0: and, um, and knowing how hard it is to win an overall probably more than most people because you've had to do it multiple times would you trade the payoff for all of that hard work over a whole season for one rainbow jersey ooh. that was the hard question I was getting to yeah. eventually, yeah
1: tough one um I don't know, man. Like, would I give up one of those World Cup titles to have a World Championship jersey? Hard to say. Um, I definitely wouldn't have said I would have earlier in my career because I just always thought, like, I'll be able to win one of these one day. I feel like I should have won a few. Things yep. just really, you know, they didn't line up. Um, I don't know. I'd say it's neither here nor there. Like, okay. I'm, I'm happy with where it's at. Be, no, it's you know, if I had four World Cup titles and a World Champs, that'd be awesome. If I have five World Cup titles, like... That's great too. Like, mm-hmm. for sure I'm bummed i never have won world champs, but I don't know if I'd give up an overall title for it. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, very fair. And um, the last thing I want to talk about is sort of what you're, you know, we're going to put this out just after the an- announcement. <laughs> so you seem to have you seem to be a busy man. Yeah. And you're ramping up a stage with Windrock.
1: Yeah, yeah. We got, uh, we got a few things that we're working on that we'll probably be announcing here over the next, you know, month to six months. A couple of big projects. But yeah, one of them, um, my wife and I will be taking over Windrock. So Will you be making bacon sandwiches in the
0: cafe yourself? Or?
1: <laughs> maybe. <laughs> she wants to definitely have smoothies and coffee and all that kind of stuff, which would be cool. Um, uh, but yeah, Windrock for me, like, uh, you know, we've lived in Tennessee a few years now. I've been riding out there for, I think three years. That's my home mountain now where I'd pretty much do all my downhill riding and training, especially through the off season when we're not in Montana in the summer. Um, and I just love it out there. Like the hill is awesome. The vibe is awesome. The terrain's great. Like I, I just love everything about that place. And I think after riding there so much the last three years, um, I just have always thought. I mean, for starters, I I love building trails. I always have since I was four years old. You know, I would get home from school every day, uh, go out, you know, do my homework, or if my parents would let me go outside first, I'd go out, I'd dig and ride till dark. I'd come in, do my homework, go to bed. That was every day growing up, like literally every day. All I wanted to do was have a shovel and be outside digging on jumps and trails. Um, And I still love doing that, close to as much as I actually like riding my bike. Like I love building trails, and so to have your own bike park and it's to be able to amazing. have the free reign to build what you want to build. Like to me, that's super exciting. And to be able to, you know, when you're like, ah, oh, I'm trying to test my bike and I really need this, but this place doesn't have it or whatever. And it's like, well, you can just go build it and make exactly what you need. Um, that's super exciting. And you know, Sean and Nico starting that place, Sean running it now, like, it's kind of become such a legendary spot around where we, where we live. Like I'm just, it's, it's so cool to have the opportunity to be able to take that over. And um, we're going to be expanding it. We're going to add in another 500 acres of terrain. We're going to push the shuttle drop off a little further up the hill. So the runs will all get longer and you'll be able to access kind of a whole other side of the hill that you can't currently access without a lot of pedaling. We'll be building out like a full on legit bike shop at the bottom. And, you know, we got big plans for that place, big investment going into it of, of time and funds. Um, but yeah, man, I'm I'm super excited. We're supposed to wrap this up here. All these agreements in the next couple of days, we're just kind of going back and Amazing. forth on the contracts. Like, yeah, yeah, like we talked about agreement, <laughs> yeah. got the lawyers making sure all the uh, I's are dotted and T's are crossed, so to speak. Um, but yeah hopefully I think in the next week that'll be a done deal we're uh, going through the staffing out there right now and, and kind of assembling the, the woke, squad woke up
0: in um, woke up in yeah, we we'll would be sick yeah, <laughs> we'll see yeah.
1: definitely got the train to do it if we wanted to
0: amazing well thank you very much for coming on it's, yeah. uh, it's
1: been really cool talking yeah thank you dude and um, if anyone's
0: been wondering what the noises are it's because we are in a car park <laughs> and just uh, just wall jogging it yeah. <laughs> yeah thanks guys we'll catch you later